You don't know everything, Howard, Lemya told me, her eyes rolling slightly, revealing just a hint of humor, letting me know that she was both kidding and not kidding. It was 1985, and we were both working at my college newspaper at Wayne State University in Detroit. I did not know much about her, except I heard that she was Palestinian and had escaped from an abusive marriage. You think you know a lot, but you don't know everything, she said. Well, a more accurate statement might have been that I didn't know anything. She was 30 years old, and I was only 19, and there were a great many things I did not know. But Lemia was specifically referring to my lack of knowledge about Arab culture and the way they think about historical and current grievances. I saw this in the angry letters to the editor I was receiving over my coverage of controversy over a book. A kind of silly-looking book. Turned out the book was not a book at all, but really a funhouse mirror through which one could view many layers of distortions. A few days earlier, Rabbi Oppenheimer of the Campus Hillel approached me at the student center. I don't know how the rabbi found me, or even how he knew who I was. I had never dropped by Hillel's area of the student center before. Somebody must have pointed me out to him as the guy who was writing pro-Israel commentaries in the student newspaper. We had never spoken before, yet Oppenheimer approached me as if we had known each other for years and were continuing an earlier conversation. He tossed a book near my lunch tray and then hovered above me and asked, Guess what I found the Muslim Students Association selling at Manugian Hall? It wasn't really a book. It was more like a pamphlet. On the cover were a strange combination of words that actually struck me as funny. The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. I didn't know what to make of it. There was an undertone of what I took to be a Jewish sarcasm right there in the title. It seemed like it could be the script for a new Mel Brooks movie. You know, like Jews in Space. I looked up at the rabbi with a half grin on my face, waiting for the punchline. Instead, there was silence. It took a couple of beats for me to realize that Oppenheimer was waiting for a reaction from me. I had nothing. He let out a tiny sigh and sat down next to me. Surely you've heard of the protocols, Oppenheimer said. My blank stare was his answer. Up until then, my knowledge of anti-Semitism was narrow, despite some experience with it during my early life in Georgia, but the serious, deadly kind of anti-Semitism was confined primarily to the Holocaust, fed mostly by my grandfather's stories of Hungary. What happened before the life of my grandfather, or how it fit in with the larger narrative of my people, I was clueless. That's what it is to be truly obsessive in the clinical sense. The information you obtain, obsessively, is narrow, focused, and often incomplete because it ignores the periphery and all that comes before and after. It was akin to extreme contemplation of the chalk outline of a corpse, with no knowledge of the events that led to the murder. My obsession with the Holocaust was devoid of context except my own family's. I'll leave this here with you, said the rabbi. Read it, and then come see me at Hillel, and I'll give you a statement for your story. My story? I had never agreed to write a story on this. But, nevertheless, I flipped the book open 
and the more I read, the more curious I became. It was filled with what I found to be laughable lines about one world government under the control of international Jewry. It was obviously written by anti-Semites, but if you are a Jew who denies it was written by Jews, well then that just proves that you are part of the plot. That's the beauty of a conspiracy theory. The more you deny, the guiltier you seem. And now Muslim students were using it as some kind of proof of Jewish intent in the Middle East. This is what Lembia was trying to tell me when she said that I did not know everything. It does not matter if the protocols are true, she said. Most Arab Muslims believe they are true, so that is the reality you deal with. We are Semites ourselves, said Mohammed, the association's president, speaking to me in a cramped office at the student center. How can we be anti-Semitic? Mohammed was to become my nemesis for the next three years. It doesn't matter if the protocols are fiction. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, said Mohammed. But you cannot deny that many of the prophecies in this book have come true. Jews run the financial systems. Prophecies, I thought. Prophecies. I cocked my head a bit like a dog. Muhammad picked up on it immediately. Yes, prophecies. But I was only in college, was learning as I went along, and had not yet had my full immersion into Arab culture with Lembia and her friends. That would come later. And through it, an appreciation of how very alike Jews and Arabs were in many respects. At that moment, though, at the age of 19, I thought I knew what an anti-Semite was. I wrote the story about the protocols of the elders of Zion, which led to my friendship with Lemia, who would change my life in many ways. Strangely, my story would be plagiarized by an intern at the Detroit Jewish News, leading to the firing of the intern, who was replaced by me. This unexpectedly led to my career as a Jewish journalist, and eventually, years later, managing editor of JTA, a Jewish news service. I hadn't meant these things to happen, but I felt I was being dragged there by this state of Jewishness that I could not escape. It was a voice that was always there since as long as I had conscious thought. It was sometimes my grandfather's voice. Other times, I interpreted it as God's. It could not have been my own since there were obviously forces outside myself at play. I was convinced of it. This voice led to the illusion of conviction and confidence, and how very convinced I was that I was right. It's how I stoically endured expressionless when the entire Arab student body showed up to a public forum to denounce my application to be editor-in-chief of my college newspaper. It's how I handled the humiliation when Abby Hoffman himself denounced me at a campus rally as a representative of all that was wrong with the youth of the 1980s. The ticks of my early childhood had morphed into rigid thought in college, Yet the feelings of being out of sync with my peers, of having another being travel with me, forcing my muscles and my brain synapses into rigid rituals were still there in more disturbing forms. The tics, the habits, even the waking sleep paralysis and night terrors I had mistaken for God much of my life. What else could they be? But by 1985, I knew that it was a flaw in me. The voice was more than an impulse. It was much more dark, persistent, life-swallowing than the narcissism of youth.